1: And there was a red-tailed hawk. They just flew over my head. So the bush tits were all hanging out in this bush. And then they saw the red-tailed hawk take off. And they did that different call when the red-tailed hawk flew away. So that's a pretty neat interaction.
2: That's Jennifer Phillips, a postdoctoral researcher at Cal Poly. She studies how urban noise affects bird song and behavior. And this week... Phillips was out recording bird songs at the Presidio, a park by the San Francisco Golden Gate Bridge.
1: So I'm out here. It's a bright, sunny day. It's very peaceful.
2: In particular, she was looking for the white-crowned sparrow. In the fall
1: is when the young first-year males actually start practicing their song. So I wanted to get some recordings of them and see if they are picking up high-performance songs or low-performance songs. And that sounds like a maybe juvenile white-crowned sparrow in the background practicing a song.
2: Phillips has been studying the white-crowned sparrow together with her former Ph.D. advisor, Elizabeth Derryberry. Recently, they published a paper about how the birds have changed their tunes in the middle of a pandemic. In the last eight months, many of our daily routines have changed a lot. Many of us are working and learning from home, with many theaters and shops and restaurants closed or at limited capacity, we just aren't going places like we did before. Yet, as our normal lives have seemingly ground to a halt because of the pandemic, the world has kept spinning. And as a result, nature has thrived. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. And this is Coronavirus, Fact versus Fiction.
3: I didn't start as a birder, but I fell in love with birdsong. I think it's very interesting signal. It's very simple in some ways, making it easy to quantify. But then it's also very complex in others, in that we're still learning about how signals vary and even their function.
2: That's Elizabeth Derryberry, Associate Professor of Evolutionary Biology at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Derryberry's research focuses on animal communication, And for 20 years, she's been studying the white-crowned sparrow.
3: It's funny. I think when you work on one bird for so long, you kind of fall in love with it. And they're just a very gentle bird. They're very gentle in the hand. They don't bite. They don't struggle. When you catch them, they just kind of go, "Okay, measure my bill size now. Thank you. Goodbye. So they're very easygoing birds. And they're very tough. You find them singing on the tops of skyscrapers and tall buildings in, in Seattle, Washington, and right next to the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, which are not the easiest places to eke out a living, but they're there, and I think that that makes them a survivor.
2: If you live in San Francisco, you've probably seen or heard these sparrows, maybe in the parks or in parking lots feeding on crumbs. They're not hard to spot. They're small enough to fit in your hand with a yellow-orange bill and a gray or brown body. But the white-crowned sparrow is named for its most distinctive feature. Here again, Jennifer Phillips.
1: They are named that because they have white and black racing stripes on top of their head. So they're they're pretty handsome for sparrows. Sparrows get a lot of grief for being boring, but I think they're very attractive birds. And then their song, of course, is one of their best features. All white-crowned sparrow songs start with a whistle, So the whistle kind of alerts other birds that, okay, here I am, I'm singing. Then they have complex notes, and that's kind of like an individual flourish almost, like a signature. And then they have sometimes buzzes, and then all of them have some sort of terminal trill at the end. And the trill is kind of where they're kind of showing off their stuff.
2: Spring is mating season for the white-crowned sparrows. The male birds will bust out their vocal pipes to compete for females.
3: So they sit there on their territory all day long, and they sing. And they're basically saying, mine. This is mine, 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 mine. It's like it's like the Finding Nemo, the gulls in Finding Nemo, right? This is mine. And their other function is to attract mates. Basically, I'm sexy, I'm sexy. Mine, I'm sexy. Mine, I'm sexy, right? They're saying that all the time.
2: But this year was a little different. Sometime in the spring when the shutdown was in full effect, Derryberry was scrolling through social media when she saw a picture of coyotes roaming freely on the Golden Gate Bridge.
3: And I was like, wait, 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 wait. Like, I know there's coyotes there, right? But they were crossing near the toll booths, and it's daylight. I was like, no, 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 no. Like, no, 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 that's not even possible. And I thought, oh, my God, it's actually... Quiet. It might be quiet, right? But how quiet is it?
2: Turns out, it was indeed very quiet. And once Dairyberry started looking into the bridge traffic data, it was like she had gone back in time.
3: And I was like, oh my goodness, April is where it was in the 50s, like 1954. The number of cars crossing the bridge looks like it did in the 50s. I mean, that's a lot less, <laughs> like you know?
2: Excited, Derryberry called her San Francisco-based colleague, Jennifer Phillips, and they hatched out a plan to record the birds while the shutdown was still in place. And when Phillips arrived, the Golden Gate Bridge was deserted.
1: It was quite noticeable that the sound levels were quieter. You know, half of these areas are very touristy, and it was just totally empty.
2: In a normal year, the Golden Gate Bridge is bustling with activity and plenty of noise from traffic and tourists and wind. And the sparrows, they do what they can, singing in progressively higher pitches so other birds can still hear them above the noise. But beginning in April, instead of sounding like this, those same birds were singing a different tune.
3: It sounds much louder, although the bird's actually singing more quietly. You can still hear traffic noise. You can hear the bump, bump, bump of some cars. So they're not completely gone, but it's quieter. And you can really hear another bird singing. You can hear this communication happening, the counter singing between two males.
2: Suddenly, the birds could hear more of each other.
3: I wonder sometimes what they think. That they kind of woke up and went, Where did all these guys come from? <laughs> like, who are all these other birds? Right? <laughs> you know, it's like suddenly they could hear things past their nearest neighbor.
2: And people could hear them too.
3: It's kind of like they came out of the woodwork. Like they were there. I talked to people out in San Francisco during the shutdown, and they were like, I hear hundreds of them. Where did they all come from? And I'm like, Oh, they've been there. You just couldn't hear them.
2: From the data they collected, Derryberry found that when the noise levels went down during the shutdown, the birds changed their songs. Maybe think of it like this. It's like going to a really crowded party. Remember those? In order to be heard, you had to raise your voice when talking to people. So during the pandemic, it was like the birds no longer had to shout to be heard.
3: It's like the cocktail party effect or the Lombard effect, we call it you know, as a party quiets down and people go home, you start to speak more softly. Maybe you sort of have that deeper conversation about the election, right?
2: (laughs) In a strange way, the pandemic shutdown has provided a natural experiment, an opportunity for us to see how we as humans shape the environment and the lives of other species. Scientists have come up with a word to describe this twilight zone, where the lack of human activity has allowed nature to flourish. They call it anthropause.
3: I think it's more of a term to capture, in a given space, a time period when human behavior changed. We exited the landscape and animals showed up. And I feel like the same things with the soundscape, right? With our traffic removal, we exited the soundscape and the birds changed their behavior in a way where they could fill that soundscape more so than before.
2: And it's not just birds. We've seen reports from around the world of coyotes, whales, turtles, animals re-inhabiting some of the space from which we humans have temporarily retreated. Even in Elizabeth Derryberry's backyard. When the
3: shutdown happened, we were all home. A fox set up her den. And she would come and hunt on our back porch at our bird feeders. (laughs) We had all these bird feeders up. My kids were thrilled, right? We'd just sit there and watch her through the window and just talk about her behavior and what she was doing and, you know, why she needed to kill, defeat her pups. And my kids loved it, and I loved it.
2: Researchers say they still have a lot to learn about the long-term effects of this anthropause. But hitting the mute button on our own hustle and bustle has perhaps, just maybe, made us more attuned to the nature that is all around us.
3: We paused in a way that also allowed us to enjoy what's around us more. And I hope that sticks with us. Like, I know it's loud again in San Francisco, but I hope that it's not as loud. I hope that people do see, like, hey, maybe I can kind of pull off this high-pressured work ethic, but modify it enough to stop and, like, smell the roses or listen to the birds.
2: If you have questions, please record them as a voice memo and email them to Asksanjay at CNN.com. We might even include them on the next podcast. We'll be back Monday. Thanks for listening. Coronavirus Fact Versus Fiction is a production of CNN Audio. Megan Marcus is the executive producer, Felicia Patinkin is the senior producer. Raj Makija is the Senior Manager of Production Operations. This week's episodes were produced by Anne Lagamayo, Rachel Cohn, Emily Liu, Aaron Matheson, Madeline Thompson, Zach St. Louis, and Zoe Saunders. Our medical writer is Andrea Kane. Nathan Miller is our engineer. And David Toledo is the team's production assistant. Special thanks to Ben Tinker and Amanda Seely of CNN Health,